Hello, my name is Diane Marie Amen. I'm the Emily and Ernest Woodruff Chair in International Law and a faculty co-director of the Dean Rusk International Law Center at the University of Georgia School of Law. I'm very pleased today to be speaking to you on the topic of child rights, conflict, and international criminal justice. Children endure unique harms in time of war, that is, during times of armed conflict and other extreme violence. In these times, children, whether they are infants, toddlers, or teenagers, are among the most vulnerable persons. Typically, children depend on adults for food, care, and shelter, so that the killing of their parents or other guardians affects them especially acutely. The same is true for the destruction of their homes or displacement for their, their, from their communities, as well as deprivation of basic necessities, education, and health care. Children themselves may be killed in violence, of course, and those who survive must eke out some kind of existence. Some children fall prey to trafficking or other exploitation. Some end up in armed groups where they may be required to take part in combat and also where they may be subjected to sexual or other physical assaults. I'm quoting here. The permanent psychological injury and arrest of normal development of the child victim is perhaps the most shocking and tragic result of genocide. The author of that quote was Raphael Lemkin, the lawyer who coined the very term genocide. Lemkin's observation extends, of course, to other international crimes, to war crimes, crimes against humanity, and the crime of aggression. This lecture, entitled Child Rights, Conflict, and International Criminal Justice, will examine the interactions between international child law and international efforts to combat such crimes against and affecting children. It is a particular honor for me to deliver this lecture this month, which marks two milestone events in this area. The first is this month's 30th anniversary of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, a comprehensive treaty to which all but one member state of the United Nations belong. The second is the imposition this same month of a 30-year sentence against a warlord whom the International Criminal Court convicted of a range of crimes, including the recruitment and use of child soldiers, as well as the rape and sexual enslavement of some of the children incorporated into his armed group. The anniversary and the ICC sentencing operate as bookends for the present lecture, which will proceed as follows. First, I will trace the developments in child rights that led to the adoption of the 1989 Child Rights Convention. Next, I will describe parallel developments in two related legal fields, that of international humanitarian law and international criminal law. After looking at relevant provisions of the Child Rights Convention and other instruments, in particular the Rome Statute of the ICC, I will conclude by evaluating efforts to ensure the rights of the child by preventing and punishing international crimes against and affecting children. Let me begin then with a discussion of developments in child rights before 1989. The norm of shielding children from the worst wartime abuses has an impressive pedigree. Hugo Grotius, in his 1625 treatise, the Law of War and Peace, noted that the ancient Roman philosopher Seneca had said this very long ago about the conduct of war. 
quote, let the child be excused by his age, the woman by her sex, unquote. That quote dates all the way to the first century, but it would take almost a millennium for the child protection norm that it set forth to be inscribed in international criminal law treaties. Indeed, even international child rights more generally were not recognized until the 20th century. Among the first such recognitions occurred after World War I, when states established the international organization known as the League of Nations. In 1924, the League's assembly adopted the Geneva Declaration on the Rights of the Child, which proclaimed, quote, men and women of all nations, recognizing that mankind owes to the child the best that it has to give, accept it as their duty to assure that children receive all basic necessities, that they be the first to receive relief in times of distress, and that they be protected against every form of exploitation. After World War II, the League was replaced by a new international organization, the United Nations. The UN took up the cause of children, but not instantly, and not in all documents. Indeed, its founding treaty, the 1945 Charter of the United Nations, makes no mention of children. In 1948, however, the UN General Assembly endorsed two documents that helped to advance child rights and protection. One was the Convention Against Genocide that Lemkin had championed, which, will, which I will discuss later in this lecture. The other was the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which included a number of references to children. Quote, motherhood and childhood are entitled to special care and assistance, one provision in the Declaration began. This provision concluded, quote, all children, whether born in or out of wedlock, shall enjoy the same social protection, unquote. Among the protections that it explicitly guaranteed was the right to education, and it further provided that this education was to be provided free, at least in the elementary and fundamental stages. A decade later, in 1959, the General Assembly adopted a new Declaration of the Rights of the Child. This instrument again urged special protections for childhood and motherhood. It too asserted the child's right to education. Furthermore, it prohibited child labor that interfered with the child's health, education, and well-being. The 1959 Declaration also mandated that children be first in line for relief and it insisted that children be protected against exploitation. Finally, it declared that the child, quote, shall be brought up in a spirit of understanding, tolerance, friendship among peoples, peace and universal brotherhood, and in full consciousness that his energy and talents should be devoted to the service of his fellow men, unquote. The UN General Assembly followed up in 1974 with yet another declaration this one aimed specifically at protecting children and women in times of emergency and armed conflict. Now, taken together, these declarations carried significant moral weight. Put another way, they held significant expressive value. But as a matter of international law, states were not obligated to obey them. And neither states nor human beings could be held accountable for violating their provisions. 
That began to change on November 20, 1989, when the UN General Assembly adopted the Convention on the Rights of the Child. The Convention entered into force the very next year. Over time, it has been strengthened by a number of developments. One is the work of its monitoring body, the Committee on the Rights of the Child. Another, the entry into force of three optional protocols, or side treaties, to the Convention. Yet another is the work done pursuant to regional instruments, such as the 1990 African Charter on the Rights and Welfare of the Child, and also the 2000 Charter of the Fundamental Rights of the European Union. As for the 1989 Child Rights Convention itself, today it has 196 parties, including the Holy See, the State of Palestine, and every UN member state except for the United States of America. Because of this nearly universal acceptance, as well as the treaty's comprehensive contents, the Convention has served for the last 30 years as the preeminent global charter on child rights and protection. In the 1989 Convention, therefore, states obligated themselves to provide children with the special care and assistance that they had promised in the earlier declarations. The Committee on the Rights of the Child has distilled the Convention's 54 articles into four general principles. Paraphrased, they are 1. Non-discrimination, that is, states must protect and ensure children's rights without any kind of discrimination. 2. Best interests. That is, states must treat a child's best interests as a primary consideration in acting actions affecting the child. 3. Survival. That is, states must ensure the child's inherent rights to life and survival. 4. Participation, or sometimes it would be called agency. That is, states must assure the right of the child, in accordance with the child's age and maturity, to express the child's views freely in matters that affect him or her. In a moment, I will discuss a few provisions of the Child's Rights Convention pertaining to children in armed conflict. First, however, let me trace some legal developments in two related subfields, international humanitarian law and international criminal law. Even while World War I raged in Europe, critics underscored the special harms that that war was wreaking upon vulnerable persons. In 1915, Jane Addams, who would later win the Nobel Peace Prize, refused, on behalf of all women, to consent to such harms. Writing that women were especially concerned about the future of childhood, Adams warned that, quote, we will no longer endure without protest that added burden of maimed and invalid men and poverty-stricken women and orphans that war places upon us." Unquote. It would take yet another world conflict, however, for these lofty ideals to be translated into international criminal prohibitions. Even then, the process was slow. No mention of children was made, for example, in the mid-1940s charters of the international military tribunals at Nuremberg and at Tokyo. That said, the judgments produced in these and other post-World War II tribunals did establish historical records of children suffering in war, 
and thus set the stage for later developments. Another advance occurred in 1949, when states adopted the Geneva Conventions for the Protection of Victims in War. The last of these four conventions contained multiple provisions intended to assure the identification, education, health, and well-being of infants and other children during armed conflict and under occupation. As I will discuss, that regime was strengthened in 1977 with the adoption of two additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions. In the early 1990s, decades after the Nuremberg era, states revived international criminal accountability as a means to prevent and punish international offenses, in particular genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. The first international criminal tribunals relating to Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia pioneered jurisprudence on sexual and gender-based violence. They did not dwell, however, on crimes against or affecting children. But that began to change as soon as 1996 with the issuance of a UN report by Grasa Michel, coupled with news reports about the prevalence of young children who were helping to wage wars across the globe, particularly in West Africa and in Asia and, I should say, Latin America. International organizations like UNICEF joined up with non-governmental groups to form various children's caucuses. These advocacy coalitions helped to spur the inclusion of child-specific provisions in two landmark international criminal law instruments. First, the 1998 Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court and second, the 2002 Statute for the Special Court for Sierra Leone. Both statutes authorized war crimes prosecutions for the conscription, enlistment, and the use of children in armed forces and armed groups. What is more, the Special Court for Sierra Leone was authorized to punish the abuse of girls and the abduction of girls. It further had the jurisdiction to prosecute persons as young as 15, although no child was ever tried by that court. As for the Rome Statute, concern for young people was manifested in its very preamble. Quote, Mindful that during this century, millions of children, women, and men have been victims of unimaginable atrocities that deeply shock the conscience of humanity, unquote, drafters declared that they were establishing the ICC, quote, for the sake of present and future generations, unquote. The body of the statute required states parties to take into account the need to include judges with legal expertise on violence against women and children. And it further authorized the ICC prosecutor to appoint special advisors with legal expertise on specific issues, including violence against children. Additional provisions instructed ICC officials to accommodate the needs of child victims and child witnesses. In contrast with the Sierra Leone Special Court Statute, the Rome Statute barred the ICC from prosecuting anyone who was under 18 at the time the alleged crime was committed. Concern for harms to children surfaced most visibly in the enumeration of crimes within the jurisdiction of the ICC. The first core crime, genocide, carried the same definition as in the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide. Accordingly, the Rome Statute prescribed both imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group 
and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. When such acts occur with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. Enumerated as a child-specific component of the second core offense, crimes against humanity, was child trafficking amounting to enslavement when committed as part of a widespread or systematic attack directed against any civilian population. A charge of the crime against humanity of persecution likewise might be child-specific if the accused were alleged to have committed the intentional and severe deprivation of fundamental rights contrary to international law on account of the victim's young age. Also listed were numerous crimes that acutely affect children or the future generations whom their own statute preamble invoked. These include sexual slavery, forced pregnancy, and forced sterilization as crimes against humanity or war crimes, and attacks on schools and hospitals as war crimes. Finally, the Rome Statute, like its counterpart in Sierra Leone, authorized prosecution and punishment for the war crimes of conscripting or enlisting children or using them to participate in actively in hostilities. I should probably say that in Sierra Leone, the crime was articulated a little bit differently as re recruitment and use instead of conscription, enlistment, and use. Given all these developments, it is little surprise that crimes against and affecting children figured prominently in post-2000 international criminal law. We will look at that in a moment. But first, let us look at key provisions of key treaties most notably the 1989 Child Rights Convention and the 1998 Rome Statute. The Child Rights Convention devoted two articles to the specific context of armed conflict. Article 39 demanded restoration of the child after conflict ends. It stated, States' parties shall take all appropriate measures to promote physical and psychological recovery and social reintegration of a child victim of any form of neglect, exploitation or abuse, torture or any other form of, of cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment, or armed conflicts. Such recovery and reintegration shall take place in an environment which fosters the health, self-respect, and dignity of the child. Article 38, meanwhile, sought to protect the child while the war was still going on. It provided, first paragraph, States parties undertake to respect and to ensure respect for the rules of international humanitarian law applicable to them in armed conflicts which are relevant to the child. Two, states parties shall take all feasible measures to ensure that persons who have not attained the age of 15 years do not take direct part in hostilities. Three, states parties shall refrain from recruiting any person who has not attained the age of 15 years into their armed forces. In recruiting among those persons who have attained the age of 15 years, but who have not attained the age of 18 years, states' parties shall endeavor to give priority to those who are oldest. Four, in accordance with their obligations under international humanitarian law to protect the civilian population in armed conflicts, states' parties shall take all feasible measures to ensure protection and care of children who are affected by an armed conflict. 
With these words, the Convention became the first child rights instrument to condemn what is known colloquially as child soldiering. Its scope was limited, however, that is, states' obligation not to permit recruitment of children extended only to the state's owned armed forces. Under the Convention, therefore, states were not obliged to protect children from recruitment by rebel groups that might be operating on the state's territory. This contrasted somewhat with the two additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions adopted in 1997, which were promulgated, like the Conventions themselves, under the auspices of the International Committee of the Red Cross. Article 77.2 of Additional Protocol 1, which covers conflicts between states, stated that parties in an international conflict shall take feasible measures in order that children who have not attained the age of 15 years do not take a direct part in hostilities, and particular, they shall, in particular, they shall refrain from recruiting them into their armed forces. That phrasing is a bit different than Article 38, and indeed may be interpreted more broadly than the similar provision in the Child Rights Convention. Broader still was Additional Protocol 2, which covers internal armed conflicts or civil wars. AP2 included within the care and aid that children require certain express guarantees. First, in Article 4.3.C, that, quote, children who have not attained the age of 15 years shall neither be recruited in armed forces or groups, nor allowed to take part in hostilities. And second, in Article 4.3d, that the special protection provided by this article to children who have not attained the age of 15 years shall remain applicable to them if they take a direct part in hostilities, despite the provisions of subparagraph C and are captured, end quote. AP2's extension of the recruitment ban to armed groups as well as armed forces was both clear and clearly linked to the pro prohibition on use, and its articulation of special protections also promised more attention to children's needs. Now, raising another point with relation to these particular provisions, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the issue of age. The 1989 convention provided that a child is, for most purposes, anyone who is under 18. But for the specific purpose of protection against child soldiering, it set the age lower, at under 15. The same is true of the two additional protocols. Although, as we've noted, with respect to recruiting children between 15 and 18, AP1 did require states' parties to try to give priority to older recruits. Even so, many in civil society criticized the lower age threshold, even while the treaties themselves were being negotiated and adopted. And in the years after the adoption of the convention, other, other child rights treaties would posit not 15, but 18 as the minimum age for recruitment and use. Among these were the 1990 African Charter on the Rights and Welfare of the Child and the 1999 Convention on the Worst Forms of Child Labor, which was promulgated by the International Labor Organization. The higher threshold of 18 eventually entered the Child Rights Convention regime as well by means of the 2000 Optional Protocol to the Convention 
on the involvement of children in armed conflict. That treaty, known as APAC, has fewer ratifications than the convention itself, however. What is more, that lower age threshold under 15 was retained in both the statute of the Special Court for Sierra Leone and the Rome Statute of the ICC. That is, both of them prescribe recruitment and use of children under 15 as a war crime. This lower age operates in this one specific area as an exception from a general international law understanding that the term child refers to someone under 18. And that operates even within the Rome Statute regime itself. For example, we mentioned that um, one of the provisions of the genocide article uh, prohibits the forcible transfer of children from one group to another. In that particular provision, child is understood to mean anyone under 18. And that's true throughout the statute was ch when children, was, children are mentioned, with the only exception of this, this uh, war crime related to child soldiering. Now, with all that in mind, let us now take a look at how international criminal law institutions have endeavored to hold persons responsible for this crime of child soldiering and other international crimes against children. The criminal prohibition against child soldiering survived an early challenge in the Special Court for Sierra Leone. In a case called Prosecutor versus Norman, the accused was a former government minister and he was accused of the war crimes of recruiting or using children under 15 um, for entry into a pro-government militia. In his defense, he asserted that such conduct was not criminal under customary international law and that therefore he could not be prosecuted for it. A four-member appeals chamber of the court held otherwise over the dissent of one judge. In doing so, it confirmed this particular prohibition as a norm of customary international law. When that occurred in 2004, one commentator um, envisaged the beginning of a trend, quote, to take seriously the issue of crimes concerning children and to prosecute those responsible for such violations, both to extract, exact retribution from the offender as well as to send a message of deterrence to others." Unquote. That said, subsequent efforts at prosecution in the special court met with mixed results. In the early ICC prosecutions as well, much attention was paid to child soldiering offenses. In the very first international criminal court case to reach verdict, Prosecutor versus Lubanga, the accused militia leader stood trial solely on child soldiering charges. This focus on children was, of course, significant. And yet, some observers, including non-governmental organizations that represented victims groups, criticized the decision to focus on child soldiering to the exclusion of all other alleged crimes, including sexual and gender-based violence. Lubanga also pointed to challenges in prosecuting crimes against and affecting children. At the end of the case, the ICC trial chamber rejected the testimony of all the witnesses who said that they had once been child soldiers. The problems of proof continued in the next two ICC prosecutions 
for this crime. In fact, in those two subsequent instances, the accused were acquitted of the child soldiering charges. Lubanga, however, was convicted, with his conviction resting in part on testimony from two expert witnesses and also on testimony from a UN official who had worked with former child combatants. A final piece of evidence that was persuasive to the trial chamber was its own viewing of a video in which the accused had spoken at a training camp while he was guarded by a phalanx, if you will, of individuals whom the court itself considered to be, quote, recruits who were clearly under the age of 15. So just by looking at them, the court was able to determine that they were under 15 years old. The appeals chamber upheld that conviction. In so doing, it clarified some open issues regarding the war crimes provision. One thing that it did was to define the difference between conscription and enlistment. And what it held was that conscription carried an element of compulsion or coercion, whereas enlistment did not. That posed a bit of um, a dilemma because the defense had argued that some of the children had volunteered to enter the militia. And what the appeals chamber said in that regard was that the alleged consent of the child was irrelevant that it was the actions of the perpetrator to admit them into the militia that mattered. And so in a sense, what we see is that the Rome Statute um, and international criminal law in general uh, bar children from consenting. It is not possible for a child to consent to this. It's a division that the law makes in the same way that the law may say, if you are under 15, you may not drive a car, no matter what your your wishes are no matter what your stages of emotional development are. And so that was a very important ruling um, in this case. Another very important ruling dealt with the crime of using children to participate actively in hostilities. One of the trial chamber judges had contended that this word using encompassed not only supportive roles within a zone of danger, for instance, the actual holding and firing of a gun, um, but also actions that occurred within a militia that were much farther away from the battlefield. In fact, it was her opinion that even sexual violence and other ill treatment that children within militias suffered was itself part of this concept of using to participate active in hostilities. Now, the appeals chamber in Lubanga disagreed with that view, and also with the defense argument that would have um, equated participation actively with another term, direct participation in hostilities that operates in international humanitarian law. Rather than um, take either of those choices, it held that the crime of using children requires proof of a nexus to combat that is, a link between the activity for which the child is used in combat, for which the child is used, and the combat in which the armed force or group of the perpetrator is engaged. The appeals chamber's interpretation placed outside the purview of using sexual violence and other conduct crucial, crucially um, disturbing and of crucial concern both to the dissenter um, 
and many others uh, who were familiar with the Lubanga case. So in a sense now we had a lacuna, a space in which um, it was not clear what if any law uh, might have protected children within militias who suffered those sorts of uh, brutality. But that lacuna or gap was filled in the case which has just ended, the case that I mentioned at the very beginning of this lecture. In that case, which is called Prosecutor versus Ntaganda, ICC Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda had levied multiple charges against the warlord who was standing trial. With regard to children, the charges did include child soldiering charges of conscription, enlistment, and use of children. But they went further to include the war crimes of rape and sexual slavery, which the prosecutor alleged had been perpetrated by the defendant's troops against children under 15 who themselves somehow were part of that armed group, had been incorporated into the same militia. That was challenged in pretrial proceedings. The accused argued that it was not possible under international humanitarian law for a person to be protected against things that happened to him or her that were perpetrated by members on his side or her side, that is, members of his or her own militia. But judges, both at the trial and eventually, at the pretrial and eventually the appeals level, disagreed. They held that the relevant provision in international humanitarian law, which is common Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions, protects persons from sexual violence and other brutality whenever they are not taking active part in hostilities. And so at the end of trial, the defendant was convicted of child soldiering as well as rape and sexual slavery against children incorporated into his militia. And it was for those crimes and several others that he received a sentence of 30 years in prison. The broader scope of the Ntaganda pr prosecution reflected a broader focus at the office of the prosecutor. Upon taking office, Prosecutor Bensouda had promised, and now we're talking in the time frame of 2012-2014, Quote, in addition to focusing on children who are forced to carry arms, in other words, child soldiers, we must also address the issue of children who are affected by arms. And so her intention was to um, begin to look at all the ways that children uh, suffer in time of war with an eye to prosecuting those other crimes when the evidence supports such prosecutions. And Taganda case was an example of that happening. Also, in 2013, the Office of the Prosecutor raised um, the phrase particular attention to crimes against children as one of its six strategic goals for prosecution. And in 2016, it published a policy on children, which laid out the crimes against and affecting children that are listed in the Rome Statute and furthermore articulated the office's commitment to consider the spectrum of child's experiences in its investigations, in its charging decisions, in prosecutions, sentencing submissions, and other activities. Let me now conclude by reflecting briefly 
on the growing linkages between international child law and international criminal justice. The ICC prosecutor's policy on children was produced over a course of several years via consultations with experts at United Nations agencies, in academia, and in non-governmental organizations. At one such consultation, occurring in 2014 at my home institution, the University of Georgia, Prosecutor Bensuda said, quote, we are also committed to respecting the rights of children with whom we interact in the course of our investigations and prosecutorial work, including their right to be heard and their right to have their best interests treated as a primary consideration, end quote. Evident in that quotation is a succinct embrace of the general principles of the 1989 Convention on the Rights of the Child. And indeed, the prosecutor's policy on children explicitly relies on those principles. In short, at the ICC, the initial, almost singular attention to the recruitment and use of children as combatants has broadened to include other in-conflict crimes against children, such as trafficking, forcible transfer, sexual and gender-based violence, killing, wounding, detention, deprivation of loved ones, food, shelter, health care, schools, culture, and community. This dovetails not only with the Child Rights Convention, but also with another important development, the United Nations Agenda on Children and Armed Conflict. Anchored by a 1999 Security Council re resolution and promoted by the Office of the Special Representative on Children and Armed Conflict, this agenda turns on a legal framework formulated in the 2000s and named the Six Grave Violations Against Children. These grave violations, to which the UN Special Representative's Office devotes its attention, are, are as follows. Killing or maiming of children, recruitment or use of children under 18, note the age, as soldiers, sexual violence, attacks against schools or hospitals, denial of humanitarian access, and abduction. Given that the source material is international humanitarian and international criminal law, it should come as no surprise that this list overlaps the Rome Statute's enumeration of crimes against children. Among the newest efforts to pursue human security, moreover, are the Sustainable Development Goals adopted by UN member states in 2015. The 17 goals, eradication of hunger, poverty, and inequality, for instance, as well as improvements in health, education, and the environment, offer ways to better humans' lives and presumably to reduce the kinds of frictions that spark violence. Of particular interest is goal 16, quote, dedicated to the promotion of peaceful and inclusive, inclusive societies for sustainable development, the provision of access to justice for all, and building effective, accountable institutions at all levels." Unquote. Within its scope are instruments ranging from the Child Rights Convention to the Rome Statute to the Arms Trade Treaty, full implementation of which would do much to improve children's fate, as well as the full range of institutions and actors that we've been discussing. The bridging of child rights and international criminal justice thus deserves welcome. Its reinforcement may encounter setbacks, as occurred when that gap uh, developed between the notion of um, what 
what child soldiers did in international human rights law and what the appeals chamber held um, in international criminal law. We saw that those gaps can be bridged and that's important. In other respects, moreover, strengthening this bridge promises very good results. To cite one example, it seems likely to attract greater scrutiny to this question of the threshold age for recruitment and use of children. And perhaps one day we might even see an amendment to the Rome Statute for the ICC that considers raising that age. A bridge between child rights and international criminal justice also may open new paths to deciding reparations for children harmed by armed conflict. Reparations decisions in which the children themselves might be per permitted to participate. Finally, inviting children to express their opinions, as the Child's Rights Convention requires, itself seems destined to increase understanding of the many ways that armed violence affects children. Thank you.